We can talk about anything you want As J-Flaunce is ignorant Welcome to J-Flaunce is Ignorance. This is episode 33. A friend of mine has foolishly joined my Discord while I was editing another podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) So you may remember Justin Hopkins from episode whatever the number was. Um, back when he interviewed me and we talked about him living in China for 807,000 years. What was it, 13 years you were in China? 17 years. 17 years. Holy smokes. Yeah. And Justin immediately um, pulled from me uh, all kinds of inf- medical information. I didn't want to talk about my butt surgery. And he <laughs> made me talk about my atheism and made me cry We're talking about my parents. And it was just brutal so i've had him back i'm he's back on the podcast now so that i can tell him what for i can give him hell for daring to uh besperch my amazing podcast with his uh uh facts and knowledge and truth and whatever (laughs) right are you there yeah yeah i'm here i'm uh i'm choking on my laughter oh um so there is a big difference though which is that when when we recorded the the Jay Flons of Ignorance where I interviewed you, your mobility was compromised. And therefore, if you tried <laughs> to escape the interview, I could have prevented that. And now it is, this time, it is a remote interview. That's right. And it would be much easier for me to just decline to answer questions that I don't want to answer. <laughs> well, I have the power of the bully pulpit now because I am in charge. I can press stop on this recording at any time. <laughs> But Twitch will know the truth because I'm, we're also live streaming to Twitch right now. Oh my gosh, this is there's so many things happening all at once. It's just incredible. <laughs> so so anyway, we were talking about COVID nineteen, and you were asking me what's it like in Omaha, and uh-huh. I was saying that I just attended an event, which for me was surreal because it was uh, about the future of local Nebraska journalism, and there were eight organizations there that are. Uh, like NPR Nebraska has been around forever, um, but the, you know the the state tries to get information to the public in terms of what the legislature is up to. And then Flatwater Free Press was <clears throat> is a new organization that just formed last year that I'm supporting. So please go to Flatwater Free Press uh, dot whatever it is com org. I don't know what they what they are exactly. I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, so they were doing a um, a roundtable sort of discussion forum uh, and. I walked in in my filthy um, dog running clothes because I'm a man in the woods who lives outside of city limits now and wrestles an 80-pound dog twice a day every day. And <laughs> I've got a mask on, and I just wanted to be supportive and sit in the back of the room and um, and just you know be there and listen to the talk. And I walk in the door, and there's 100 people wearing you know super fancy city slicker clothes talking with their mouths at each other over hors d'oeuvres and drinks and stuff. And they're like, oh, there's the bar. It's free. Go get some. And, and, and I'm just, like, shell-shocked. I, like, can't believe that what's happening is, like, like COVID-19 had never happened. And that was really amazing to me that there were, like, five of us with masks on and everyone else was maskless. And having, you know, social hour or, you know, half hour before the presentation started, and I was just kind of like, wow, you know, some people have really just moved on with their lives. So um, I don't know. Yeah. What, so like, what's your daily experience? And well, so you're down I, in I wanna, Austin now, Austin. Yeah. Texas. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you your experience. So, so like, I wanted to clarify because you said it. You, it was like the last two years didn't happen. Do, do you mean that 
you're surprised that they're not masked or do you mean that the were you shocked at just like being in a large gathering with people talking to each other normally like we used to um both 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 maybe okay. yeah so so i you know, so the the reality of the statistics and the scientific consensus i think is that if you're vaccinated at this point and your local hospitals aren't overburdened with people who have decided not most you know effect you know eight to one it's going to be people that were not vaccinated that are sick and hospitalized from covid um but under omnicron it's just kind of out there and everybody's going to get it and you will end up having it you know so be vaccinated and then go live your life you know that's that's apparently how a lot of people are living now which was a surprise to me because you know i work from home i'm outside the city limits i run dogs twice a day every day in the in the woods <laughs> you know so the big yep. city life has completely passed me by like i've completely lost uh, track of what it is to be a city slicker um because you know when i drive into town now you like that phrase that i use yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> when i drive all the way into town now um it's you know i just i'm in a cost well you know i'm downtown every weekend for the distribution for food not bombs but that's um you know we're, we're masked just out of i don't know habit maybe at this sure. point i'm not sure but you know i also have people that are like that get in my face and want to talk to me every week and um when people really want to be up in my face i like masks <laughs> i mean <laughs> it's just it's it's nice to feel like um yeah, I don't know. Have, having social hour with a bunch of um, you know, intellectuals is a very foreign concept to me currently. Because <laughs> in the last two years, I, I, I went to one rock show, you know, and I was just masked in the back of the room. And there was a lot of people and it was indoors, but everybody is wearing masks unless they're drinking. No, that's not true. Oh, well, yeah, that is true. Yeah, everyone was wearing masks, but everyone was also drinking. So the masks were down a lot. But I was in the back of the room breathing out, you know. But, yeah, I'm breathing everyone else's air. But, you know, uh -huh. I just decided that that's it, – it's not worth giving up 100% of my life to COVID. I'll give up 99% of my life to COVID, but not 100%. Uh -huh. So that was my big rebellion as I went to a rock show once in the last two years because, you know, I'm uh, I'm edgy. <laughs> yeah. When I, no, so, yeah, I – the um, – so my, you know – so speaking about what my experience was, so I was in China when COVID broke out. And, um, the, you know, their response about a month after it broke out, was it a month? Yeah. It was probably about two weeks to a month after it broke out. Like they locked down super, super hard and effectively COVID, this is the original strain worked itself out of China through severe, severe lockdown measures. And by May, uh, of 2020 life was mostly back to normal except for the fact that they closed their borders to people returning in mid-march so describe so that, daily life so like you'd go back to your apartment or house or uh well whatever, and there, it there was, would be government employees standing there with like thermometers and stuff swiping you right yeah well it was it was it was multi-layered and um now, I want to be clear that I don't 
think I'm not willing. The the fact that they got COVID under control relatively quickly does not mean I approve of what they did because, in a sense, you know, a lot of rights don't really exist in China the way that we understand them. You know, there's always these catch-all clauses in Chinese law where uh, where it says, oh, and by the way, we can get out of this statute if we want to, if we consider it a you know necessary thing for the continuance of the government. Um, but effectively what it was was that they restricted travel between counties, between cities, and that you had to prove that you had a reason to enter a certain county. Uh, and, you know, if you were a, you know, so China has a national ID system and on that ID, it says where your home county, where you're registered as living. And if you didn't have that, you couldn't enter the county. So there's checkpoints so throughout the country or they're just yes. hotspot areas or yeah. everywhere? Checkpoints, you know, in those first few months, there were checkpoints throughout the country. And so roads, trains, like anything you yep. want to get on, Yep. there's yep. government employees standing there or whatever. Yep. What, what do they call government employees? Do they call them government? Civil, CCP? <laughs> civil, civil, civil servants. Well, civil there is servants. a difference. Yeah, there were civil servants uh, who were there. And also what they did is they – because when it broke out, it was Chinese New Year. And so for those of you who don't know, Chinese New Year is a two-week-long sort of – two- to three-week-long sort of mass travel period where people go back to their hometown and spend you know, two, two weeks or so, give or take, just eating and re-seeing all – seeing all their relatives once again. you know. And in many cases, that's the only time they'll see them in the year. So it's you know a two-week – uh, uh, two week, you know, food fest and drinking fest, and yeah, it's really important to their uh, to their lifestyle. So a lot of people got uh, forced, you know, were forced basically sort of locked in to wherever they happened to be, even though their registration didn't, you know, they weren't necessarily registered as living in, you know, whatever city. So a fair number of people were just like, and I'm not joking, they were locked into a rural town. Because they happened to be there during during Chinese New Year, and they couldn't even leave for months. Um, so, so you if, know, you were, I, if you were randomly visiting somewhere for a couple of days, and then the lockdown happened, suddenly you're there you're for stuck months. There. You're, per, you're stuck there for months, and if you lost your job because of it, tough shit. Uh, if you didn't have enough money, yeah, that's your problem. So like family um, funerals, somebody's sick, somebody's in the hospital, it doesn't matter. You're locked. Doesn't matter. You you can't you can't move from and you know, you can't move from from place to place. And in Wuhan, where it started, you were uh you know, so like if you were in a small town, you could move within that town, you know. But if in a place like Wuhan where it started, you know, people were locked into their apartment compound, you know. And, and like, you know, there's there are people who couldn't who didn't leave their apartment complex for 3 months. Um, they could, they they basically could only go to a small market, which was in the complex, to get vegetables and that kind of stuff. But no other travel was allowed. So I'm guessing that the rules don't apply if you're a CCP government official, and that you can get exceptions if you're well connected to the party. Was that true I, in your experience, or you I, don't know because you don't have visibility into that? I world? just I just don't know. I mean, for sure, you know, civil servants, I'm sure, could travel. Uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I just don't know. That's just my expectation that yeah. that would be true. Um, and and, and so, some of that travel is going to be to implement the lockdown, right? So like they're going to move oh, sure. hundreds of thousands of people from zone to zone or whatever because they have to have people to enforce the 
um, everything. Yeah, for sure. So during that time, they also basically locked down uh, every business uh, that had, uh, I mean, and you, you were not allowed to go into an office park basically during that time. And you, uh, the only things that were open were supermarkets, uh, traditional markets, and banks, and nothing else. Traditional and, markets um, meaning I can buy clothes or? Yeah, just like, because like a lot of, you know, a lot of Chinese consumers uh, get their vegetables from like farmer's markets where the farmers just, you know, will drive in or cart in, you know, produce for the day. And, um, but yeah, there's other knickknacks in there. And uh, yeah, those are basically the only three places that were open. Hospitals, I mean, even hospitals were sort of closed because they didn't want you in the hospital uh, unless you had COVID. And if you had COVID, they put you into, you know, a quarantined area in a hospital. So for, um, the, for the typical, and, and China is a much richer country than it used to be overall. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but for a, a typical Chinese person who um, is working somewhere at, a, at a, a small factory or a, whatever, just small retail, and that shutters, they just don't have any money and they can't pay rent. And so people, what, got evicted, didn't get evicted? Like, what what happened to a common, like, what's a, I, I mean, there's yeah, there's a billion stories, literally, but g- give me a sense of, were, were there mass evictions because people couldn't pay rent because people didn't have money to pay rent? So or? I what happened with most, what happened was that uh, every, uh, tenant and every landlord basically tried to negotiate, uh, had to negotiate what to do. Most people that I know continued to pay their rent. There were exceptions where the government owned the property, where they would let you not pay rent for a couple months. Um, so if and so so yeah, one of the things that most people don't know about China is that technically speaking, the government uh, well. The go- the government owns uh, quite a bit of property, and that and like and I mean like the government owns like malls and in some cases and and um, uh, apartment complexes. And so if they happen to be your landlord, you could actually get uh, rent relief if that was the case. But for the great majority of people, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert, but in, just in my experience there, you had to kind of just negotiate this out with your landlord. I didn't witness many. I didn't witness any evictions, but I did witness a lot of businesses close. Quite a few, quite a few businesses that were in sort of weak, weaker than normal financial situations uh, closed. And also, an interesting thing is that usually right after Chinese New Year is when a company is in its weakest financial position because um, suppliers and debtors, you know, suppliers and you know, customers, they all like to settle up. Um, right before Chinese New Year so they can pay out bonuses. So companies are usually, in my experience, in their weakest financial position right at Chinese New Year because they paid out bonuses and uh, they, they just have less cash on hand on the expectation that March, you know, when Chinese New Year finishes, depending, you know, uh, there's, there's going to be a lot of revenue coming in. So uh, a fair number of companies closed um, and never to reopen again. Um, they were just bleeding out cash because they still had to pay salaries. They still had to pay rent. Um, they, there were legal, um, certain, uh, legal, uh, loopholes where you could reduce the salary that you owed to employees. As I understand it, again, I'm not an expert, 
but these were like act of God things where you could move from paying their full salary to a defined minimum salary. So just to make sure I'm tracking, businesses by law had to keep paying salaries to workers that were not working because their businesses were shuttered. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Oh, dude, that's not that's not capitalism. That's like communism or <laughs> yeah. socialism or something. Well, but but like, you know, in, in many cases, again, I'm not an How expert. Dare you? But... How dare you take care of your people in China? That's not fair. <laughs> Screw the workers. The business owners should get to fire them all immediately and then rehire them at lower wages. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I said, screw the workers. And Justin said, yeah, I just want just want to point that out. You know, I, so <laughs> I, I, I one of the things that I find, you know, difficult to talk about with people who who haven't lived in China is, is it um, is it socialism? Is it capitalism? And, you know, what is it actually like? Because the Communist Party is definitely in control at the top and they hold you know all the levers of power and um it's 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 a strange mix of it's a strange mix of capitalism and a authoritarian um group that loves to regulate the market uh, and the authoritarian group at the top are all quite wealthy and uh you know their kids go to elite universities in western countries uh even though that is not the foundation of their ideology and so it's it's just difficult to describe that but it is you know and it's 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 changing now but it certainly is what most people would recognize as a market economy with a very active and regulatory happy government yeah so um, so so you, if you were, if, if if you were a business owner during that time, you were losing your hair and you were bleeding out money, and and you know you you are you know not sure if you're going to have to close your business that you've made worked on for ten fifteen years, and the government does not care uh, if you don't have any money. They, so if I was a, if I was a business owner and I was paying somebody hourly, and the business was shuttered through no fault of my own, and I said, well, of course I'm not going to pay you. You didn't come to work today. What would happen to me? Well, I, I again, the the answer is I don't know. Um, that those are quite specific things that I just don't know about. Um, but if you were paid hour, if you were hired hourly, then obviously you probably wouldn't pay them. But most people, I think, were hired, uh, you know, on salary. You know, and and again, this just could could just be my understanding of it. But yeah, mo, mo, for so what most people it is they had to keep paying their employees. Uh, but they paid them at a reduced rate. Uh, most as workers or salary workers? I, I'd say most. I'd say all salary. My guess would be that all salaried workers got paid through the pandemic, but not their original salary. That's yeah. my understanding of it. Yeah. But but my understanding of the American economy is most em, most employees are hourly employees. Is that different in China? I'm gonna. You know, I want to answer that, but I think the correct answer is I just don't know. Um, because I, you know, I, I try to be conscientious of what I experienced and what I know and what I'm guessing. Yeah. And when I'm guessing, I try to say, I really just don't know because, you know, like I, I, you know, I'm not a native speaker of Chinese. Like my Chinese is pretty good. It's pretty good for a non-native speaker, but you know, the, the details of accounting and the details of the law are kind of like the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Like I just, 
you know, I'll read sentences where I'll be like, you know, I feel like I understood most of the, the words in that sentence, but I don't know what it means. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but it was, you know, it, it, it was a, it was really stressful for everyone because, you know, employees, you know, people who don't own businesses, you know, would go home at Chinese New Year cash rich so that they could hand out the red envelopes, you know, because yeah. that's what you've got to do. Like, that's a big part of Chinese New Year is if I am a full grown adult, especially if I have kids and if I have nieces and nephews, when it comes to Chinese New Year, I'm coming back with a fat wad of cash and I'm going to be handing out red envelopes loaded with money to my nieces, my nephews, my kids, uh, you know, and, and, you know, distributing the wealth, you know, which is, I mean, we're talking about thousands of years of tradition, this coming home after being away from my family for a year, I've saved money, I've worked hard, and now I'm going to hand out the gifts and, you know, sort of, reaffirm those family bonds you know and so so a lot of people also i i, I don't want to make it sound like it's only the businesses who suffered the you know the the you know the 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 average worker also suffered because they had just handed out a whole bunch of cash and now they're just like yeah you're not allowed to work <laughs> and you can't leave and they're just like oh my god you know if they had mortgage payments or you know if they had other things so now yeah. um one other thing <clears throat> one other thing i'd add to that is that um, generally speaking, to my understanding, Chinese consumers, Chinese, the average Chinese person is a great saver of money. Um, and, and that has been also, I've read data that supports that. And that has also been my experience that the average Chinese consumer is uh, quite good at saving money. And, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear experts, you know, speculate as to what the origin of that is. Maybe Chinese people have always been that way. Maybe it's because, you know, People in their 60s lived through the Cultural Revolution. People in their 70s lived through the Great Leap Forward, you know, and that, you know, it's kind of like the the mentality of, you know, our, you know, people here in the U.S. that lived through the Great Depression, you know, that sort of stuff. But so I think, you know, again, I don't know. It, it feels like most people were able to weather it. And I think it is something to do with the fact that they are generally pretty studious about saving money. And again... I'm saying that on average, you know. Right. What is your give me give me a sense when you were living in China, give me a sense of how much visibility you had into different wealth strata, right? So like you were solidly I'm like you were learning earning a good income as a business owner uh running schools teaching English, right? I mean that's well, kind of where you were at. Well, I mean, yes and no. Is the Chinese I, it, IRS it, listening to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, yes and no. I mean, like the, the, you know, I, no, I wasn't earning a great, a great income. No, not at all. Um, and the, but, but yeah, you did, you do see a, a large difference in, you know, wealth that was there. Yeah. And so, so did you have friends that were dirt poor and friends that were super rich and like, what was your visibility I, like into the different people? I knew people. Well, boy, that's a that's a really interesting question. So I knew Thank people you. who were. Our podcast uh, is known for really interesting questions. I knew people who were <laughs> super rich. Um, I knew people who were. I wouldn't say dirt poor, but certainly low income. Yeah, and I knew plenty of people who were middle class, um, and uh yeah the the you know it it seemed like 
in mainland China, most of the super rich uh, were people who had government connections, who had bought a lot of property when the market opened up in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So uh, when when people were allowed to sort of own apartments and sort of own land, and the, the price of real estate just skyrocketed um, through 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 the years and all that savings you were talking about earlier that all gets pumped into real estate is my understanding exactly yeah that's my that's been my experience too which is that um so which is that culturally speaking i think on average you know i'm very careful to to, (laughs) this is a whole other thing but like i I try to really be careful that when you talk about cultural behavior you talk about averages you know because like you'll say well i'll say like something like oh the chinese are, are if i say chinese people are good savers of money and then you'll hear, and then you'll see, like, well, what about all those? I see all these Chinese people in Vancouver that blow all this money on sports cars, and there's a whole like <laughs> sports car racing club that's almost ninety percent Chinese in Vancouver. It's like, yeah, I know, I know. There are exceptions because there's a billion of them, but <laughs> I'm talking about you know averages. But yeah, um, yeah so the, so there is so so in China, you know, I think most people build their nest egg by trying to own property because. They view the stock market as loaded with fraud, which I think it is as well, um, and not a reliable way to build a nest egg. And so they prefer to just try to own real estate. And so, you know, I think most uh, Americans will build their nest egg through mutual funds. And, you know, real estate is a part of it, but not usually the main part of it. Um, And so, so the now, now, culturally speaking, it seems to me that the Chinese like real estate in a way that many other cultures don't. So like, for example, in China, if you do not own your own apartment or home, you're not allowed to get married. That is uh, the, the, the woman, the bride would not agree to, to get married unless you had, unless you owned your own property. Oh, so this, this is a legal thing. This is just a cultural that, norm. Yes. A hundred percent, a cultural norm. Yeah. And, and so, so, and so, you know, so a, you, you add this into the fact that they are very suspicious of stock markets in general, um, that, yeah, and you can see how there is a feedback loop where there is a constant reinvestment in uh, real estate. So, um, yeah, anyway, so, so generally speaking, like, you know, people would measure their wealth often in terms of how many apartments they owned. You know, and, you know, hushed discussions about a person being super rich is often, you know, followed by, oh, this guy owns like 20 apartment units in, you know, in, you know, Suzhou alone or something like that. And yeah, and then you kind of feel like, oh, I know that, you know, that one apartment is worth this much. And um, so, middle, you know, and middle class people are, you know, are just just like regular middle class people here in America. Like, you know, they they work their jobs, you know, they're making mortgage payments, they, you know, worry about their kids' education, you know, they, um, you know, they, it's, it's, they're totally relatable, you know, if, if you speak Chinese, if you understand Chinese, like their concerns are everyday concerns that, you know, you and I recognize. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, working class folks, like it's the same thing, you know, most working class folks, a lot of them are not from the city that they're, that, that I was in, you know, they were from, rural communities you know many many hours away and they were 
they didn't go home often, but they would go home for Chinese New Year. Uh, they worked in factories. Uh, they worked as nannies. Um, you know, they were uh, also worried about their kids' education and, you know, just sort of making ends meet and that kind of stuff. And, um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, one of the things that I really came away with having lived there for 17 years is that if you if you're able to communicate, you know, with a common language, like their concerns and their worries and their joys are 100 percent relatable. Like uh, it's actually kind of a, a really a thing that gives me a lot of comfort, which is that there's there's, you know, Chinese culture and American culture like they're. I don't know. Can I say culturally distant? Like they're very, they're, like their traditions, their backgrounds are very different. And once you know each other's language, like most of what they worry about and care about is a hundred percent understandable. You know? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I was really struck, you know, twenty years ago or whatever when you uh, invited me over there. That was my first time in Asia, and it's literally the other side of the planet. And I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be as different as it gets on planet Earth interacting with humans. And I was just really struck by. These are people <laughs> just like just like I've lived with all my life and they have the exact same concerns that that we all have. You know, it's I was yeah. I, I was struck by how not different it was, right? Sure yeah. there's tons of differences and I don't know what they're saying and I can't read I can't read anything. <laughs> yeah. But it was just, you know, it was just, oh, that's the dad and that's the mom and those are the kids and they go yep. to work and this is the job and they make this thing and people buy that thing and there's money and you know, you here's how you get from point A to point B and here's where you buy groceries and you buy food and you eat it and you poop it out and it's it's the exact same thing. Like I was struck by how not different it was. You know. Yeah, and 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 there are differences, and, and I can't, and I find them very interesting, and I can talk about them. But you know, it's 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 funny. Like most of their concerns are, you know, it's just their everyday life is really everyday life. You know, here on, on average. Now, of course, there's things, there's you know, big questions and mark question marks about you know what's happening with the Uyghurs there, which again I don't know for sure. Um, and you know, there's always this, but but again, like. It's it, their 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 experiences is very relatable. You know, it's like, you know, like you know, a, a regular topic of conversation is mother-in-law, and you know, yeah. <laughs> mother-in-law being too nosy, and knucklehead junior playing too many computer games, and worrying about him not doing his homework, and uh, or your your you know your your twenty-one-year-old daughter, what you know, who's in college, does she have a boyfriend? What is this boyfriend like? You know, are we ever going to meet him? Like this sort of stuff. You know, yeah. is, you know, right. th- th- this is. Yeah. Are you going to get into a good school? Are you going to get a good career? Like, what are you going to do with your life? You know, it's all the exact yeah. same questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I pause this podcast for a moment? Yeah, yeah. I need to go uh, to the bathroom. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me. All right. We're hitting stop. Go ahead and pause. I'll be yeah. right all right. Uh, Welcome back. We are recording. Yeah. Um, what were we yeah, talking the other thing <laughs> we were talking about, I was trying to answer, you asked me what it, what the different wealth, social strata was like in china and uh oh like, I, like your, one of your the personal things... exposure to that so like i have a theory in my head which says okay. that there's a bunch of people in america who really don't understand the lives of the poor right and uh-huh. they don't understand how much suffering there is going on out there because they live in their suburbs and they live in their you know uh cult houses in the woods like me right 
And I'm down there, I'm downtown every weekend seeing just a small slice of it, you know, just for a few hours every weekend, not like um, constantly. I don't do this for, I don't try to help people for a living, right? I just make money for corporations for a living, you know, I'm no saint. But every weekend I get exposed to this and I feel like everyone's living in a bubble, including me. Like I lived in my bubble for decades, you know, where I had no exposure to poor people because I was worried about getting a college degree and failing. I was worried about getting a job and succeeding and then that job collapsing. And then I was worried about my next job and (laughs) buying my first house and getting like run out of the state of South Dakota by the attorney general, you know, and uh, all these things, which I think we talked about on our episode previously. Um, That was an overstatement. For comedic effect, please don't come after me, whoever the... Jay is a law-abiding citizen <laughs> and a scrupulously, scrupulously decent man, the, the authorities that are listening. Uh, yeah, you, you never worked with me in Yankton, South Dakota, right? That was before our time. No, that yeah. was before... I mean, I met you, and we... You know, I went to that office up there once. Oh, and, did you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Man, I was so impressed with you, and I still <laughs> am. Happened? I don't want to sound like... What that happened to me? When I, I remember, because you were just you fuck, you hadn't finished college, and you're like, uh, which you time? were like the second in charge in in this company. I was in, the in president of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I was just it's like the God power damn. of Pearl, Justin. Pearl can <clears throat> do wonders. All you have to do is learn how to program Pearl in the year 2022, and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. That's my life yeah. experience. I'm here to testify. <laughs> Yeah, I I was like, man, this is awesome. Yeah, Jay's this is my new friend. This guy's great, you know. Oh, so um, you're just gold digging me for decades. He's been gold digging me. This is the long con to get me to invest in his NFTs. Now I can tell. This is uh, yes. This you've, you've I've now exposed the uh, oh, so, shallow nature of our really of our friendship. Yeah. No, so the uh, sorry. So the the point I was trying to make is that I, I have this theory that a ton of people. Um, don't understand what I think millions of Americans are are experiencing in their daily lives in terms of poverty. They they just don't see it. They don't see it on TV. They don't see it in their house. They don't see it in their neighborhood because they drive from their na- nice neighborhood to somewhere else, and they just don't see it. You know, and there's obviously tons of exceptions to that, but there's a lot of people at the bottom of this financial spectrum in the United States that people just aren't aware of and. If we're the richest, most powerful country in the world, and if we have pride in being Americans, it seems to me we could be doing better by everybody. And everyone's so sick. Of it. No one's going to listen to this podcast anymore because I just this is the third episode in a row, fourth episode in a row I've droned on about this. But it feels like I can't get people to see what I think I see. And it's possible that I'm just wrong. Right. It's possible that I'm blowing this way out of proportion. And, yeah, there's a few people that need help in Omaha, but that everyone generally is fine and the system works great um, overall. And millions of Americans are doing great. The vast majority of us are doing great. But I, I don't think that's true. I think what's happening is that there are millions of Americans at the bottom of the economic spectrum that are having a really hard life. And we could be doing so much better so trivially just by – uh, having progressive income tax that actually works and wealth taxes so that I, I don't think it's ethical for people to um, make so much money that the next 17 generations of their family, you know, 3,000 great, 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 great ch- grandchildren never have to work a day in their lives. I don't think that's ethical. I think that people should have to, you know, work and produce something for society that is uh, that is that is 
that is useful. I, I you know, the the idle rich, the the concept of idle rich just bothers me when people are suffering. I don't care if you have idle rich if everyone has access to housing and food and medical care. That's the the bare baseline where I think we we can call ourselves an ethical society. And then, you know, billionaires can billionaire, which I've said 15 times. I'm sorry to anyone who's been listening to this podcast recently (laughs) because this is just over and over and over again. But the um, that that's, I think, one of the major thrusts in my brain in recent months is that systemically I'm just – um, tired and upset that the 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 ball keeps on rolling the way that it does. So anyway, your your perspective from your life experience, and especially your perspective from uh, seventeen years in China, and the fact that over the last fifty years or whatever it's been, that China raised millions of, I mean, hundreds of millions of people oh, out of abject poverty. Oh. Yes. You know, and that's huge. Yes. And that, so, like, like, I come at, at it from a utilitarian perspective, I think. Somebody should just tell me to shut up that that's not utilitarianism. But the, <laughs> when millions of people are lifted out of abject poverty and have better lives, that's good. Whatever makes yeah. that happen, that's good. And I, I think you would say that, you know, it's capitalism that made that happen for the Chinese, right? Um, maybe you wouldn't, or maybe we don't even have to talk about that. That's fine. But I, I guess <laughs> when I'm talking to Chris three episodes in a row, wh- what I'm failing to do is I'm failing to communicate somehow how he sees the world through a lens of um, of individual rights and protectionism. And I see the world through the lens of um, fairness in terms of if some people are super rich – no one should starve, right? And that that's more important. And what about the individual rights of the people who who can't, uh, you know, get a job because they have mental handicaps or physical handicaps and they can't be um, um, financially successful? Like if they if they can't produce things that people value in terms of an economic system, and then your housing is based on paying money to uh, to uh, um, to to be able to live, you know, and we don't have a baseline safety net. Like, I don't think I'm asking for the world. I think I'm asking for if we're the richest country in the world, great. Let's make sure no one starves in the street. If people want homes, house them. Uh, You know, I don't understand. So if you want to, and I I understand like people like you and me and Chris, right? We, We have to have, we have to be incentivized to work because if I could make the money I'm making now and not work, I'd not work tomorrow, right? You can't incentivize me to not work because I won't work. Right. Mm-hmm. I understand that. I get it. And for tons of people, that works fine. Right. Like if, mm-hmm. if I want to buy Chris's brand new, you know, fancy microphone or, you know, he you know, I want to buy his tractor, I'll give him whatever amount of resources that he feels is equitable and we can both agree or, or not agree to come to some kind of arrangement where you and Chris and I, you know, are exchanging whatever we value and everyone wins, everyone benefits. And that's great. But as a society, I feel like we have to have a baseline below which, a safety net below which no one can fall, right? Whether they've made terrible decisions for themselves or not, whether they whether they have physical or mental deficiencies or you know handicaps or whatever or not, there has to be a safety net at the bottom which lets people not die in the streets if you're going to have a Ferrari. That's not okay with me, you know. And I, I can't I can't seem to communicate that. So I'm interested in hearing you reflect on my 
you know, flaming liberal rant where um, com- <laughs> communism is the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, I, like, I, like I'm, I, not, I'm not saying that communism yeah. is the solution. I'm not saying that socialism is the solution. I'm not saying anarchy is the solution. What I'm saying is I don't understand how in such a rich capitalistic country it's okay to let people starve, especially in a nation that claims to be Christian. And fucking Jesus told you to take care of the fucking poor and to cast off your worldly possessions. And we call ourselves a Christian, and I'm not even a Christian. Like, how how is it that I'm the one, as an atheist, looking at a, a country that claims to be largely a Christian nation that lets people not have resources because the individual rights of in, the, the, the rights of individuals to not be taxed is somehow greater than that when the fucking Bible says that it's you know it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And I don't even believe that's true, but they, they say they do. And they, and I don't fucking get it. And it just makes me so mad. And then like with, with China, like I don't understand how you can run a society without clean drinking water. Like I, I don't, I don't understand that. Like how is it that all of China has to boil their water? Like I don't understand how that's acceptable. Like how can you just not have a water system that's drinkable, like potable water, Seems like a baseline kind of thing, and it's just not the reality in China. And I so I'm just gonna shut up, and you can tell me so, what the fuck's wrong with me. So, yeah, this is gonna take a while. <laughs> well, okay, first well, of all, let me. You've got about let, 40 let me, years to to fucking fix me before I'm dead. So, well, I, I think first of all, the, I I think that um, I I no, I get it, man. Like I, I I think one of the things I like about you is your sympathy you know, for, for people in general, and you're uh, an awesome human being. And um, yeah, I, so my, so I have, I have to say that my experience in China has um, given me great pause on poverty, because I personally witnessed the lifting out of poverty of um, many, many people in China. And that was largely, again, I'm not an expert, but my experience was that people were moving from horrible subsistence level farming in very, very remote, very underdeveloped areas to factory jobs in cities. And uh, they experienced a very large increase in their standard of living. and. Um, that the root causes of those things are, you know, hard to pinpoint, but I would suggest things that, you know, China gained a new uh, set of property rights in the mid 80s and later on, although property rights are not super strong there, you know, um, and that, yeah, I, I, I witnessed... I witnessed that firsthand. You know, I, I knew people who were living hard lives on the edge of exi- or I don't want to say hand to mouth farming, but just a step above hand to mouth living in farming communities where they were farming. And I'm not joking, you know, less than an, far less than an acre of land and trying to make ends meet and going well, an to acre of land sounds like a crap load of work. Like, 
if you're doing yeah. that by hand, and, and, oh my God, this you're working is, yourself yeah, to and this death. Is, this is non-mechanized, unmechanized yeah. farming life. So we're not talking about like, you know, when we <laughs> picture farming, we're like, I mean, farmers today, yeah. some of them, you know, will farm a thousand acres or, you know, anywhere from, you know, 400 to, I've heard of 6,000 acre, you know, I know people who do that. Yeah. Sitting in an air conditioned, um, <laughs> box with a radio playing the whole time you know oh and now and now their tractors drive themselves because they have complete gps maps programmed yeah. in of and their, i'm not of their saying farm life. i'm not saying farm life is easy i'm just saying that they produce no. an insane amount of food they produce enough food oh, for hundreds so of thousands good. of people it's crazy how much it's our crazy. modern our, our modern farming techniques are just amazing and you and and a handful of people can produce food for hundreds of thousands or you know tens of thousands of people it's insane right the technology yeah. is insane it's, As and, opposed and, to, and, I've got a hoe and I flood my field and I hoe my fucking field for eleven hours a day to try to not die and tr and try to manage the water intake to my rice fields because rice fields need yeah. a certain amount of standing water, which which is if you get it right, it's awesome because rice produces a whole crap ton of calories per you know square meter. Yeah, but they're 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 tr they can be very tricky to tend to. Um, and, and so that thing is, uh, I will never forget it because I, what I witnessed it myself. Um, the other thing that I also, you know, and again, I, I, this is my personal experience. Um, but it was that in, in a country that, you know, has a billion people, you know, I witnessed very, very few homeless people there and there is no little to no social safety net in China. Uh, it's nearly zero. How does that um, work? They're all relying on family members. Yeah, and again, I, I don't know, but I think that their family ties are much stronger uh, than the average family here. And again, just my opinion and, and just what I experienced. But, you know, I can I, – I really – I think in the 17 years that I was there, I really only saw maybe – I, I, I did not see many homeless people. I probably saw less than less than ten. Less so, than ten, less than twenty. So there are people begging in the subway stations and stuff. Um yep. a lot of that from a previous conversation that was probably on the podcast that you and I did <laughs> yeah. was, it, was, is is fairly performative where the the specific woman that I'm remembering that I'm sure you probably remember, or maybe you don't, but it burned into my brain really hard. In the mm -hmm. train station with her disabled, possibly disfigured, I don't remember, son begging mm. and just broke my heart. Mm. And then we were back there again and she's still there and she's still, you know, this is uh, – so I, I don't know how much money you would you would give to that problem before she wouldn't be in that train station asking for money anymore. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah it's but but how, I do vague I vaguely remember that um, how how in China how in Beijing how in Shanghai is there not a skid row and in America there's a skid row with hundreds of people living oh, yeah. in these situations how how does that work like I understand your your family connections can save you know a, a, a person who gets addicted to drugs or something and the family can pull them back up. Right. That's great. Yeah. Is that the I, only secret to how the fuck they don't have thousands of people in downtown L.A. on Skid Row or hundreds or well, whatever it is? You know, I I think. Well, OK. I'm pretty sure that the average family tie in China is 
quite a bit stronger than the average family tie in America. Um, and it's just all kinds of things. Like, for example, then this may or may not be related, but just let me throw out some examples. So, um, if you were, if you were, if you had a newborn and you you got you had a son or a daughter, but if you had a son, you would immediately start saving for his down payment of the home that he would move into. You know, when he was going to, or he was in, you know, marriage marriageable age, and so. You know, it's so the that tie is definitely stronger, you know, and um, and the the tie of investing in your kids education is also stronger. You know, so, for example, I heard stories like this multiple times there, uh, which is that um, a a parent or a married couple who had one child, you know, again, most of them only have one child. They would uh, sell their house to send their daughter uh, or their son to study in America for four years, you know, and they would move into, they just start renting, sell their house. Yep. Wow. Because they could, you know, their kid couldn't get loans in America. They would just, they just sell their house. Now. Okay. When I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in shorthand. Very few people own a house house there, but I'm talking about managed apartments, like condos that they have property rights to and they own, but uh, they 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 pay management fees on, but don't pay property taxes on. But it's it's effectively theirs for a ninety year or a hundred year period or whatever. Anyways, so when I'm talking about this, I'm speaking in shorthand, right? Yeah. But yeah, like that was a that was a pretty normal thing. It was it was it was praiseworthy, but not uncommon uh, there to sell a home to send your kid to go into education. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I knew, I knew a mom personally who did that. She sent her daughter, a, a very high achieving, very bright young woman, uh, to go study in America for four years. Um, you know, people in the average Chinese family, they will loan money to each other often. Also, another thing that I observed was that extramarital affairs, uh, were, uh, more accepted not not acceptable. They were still a scandal. Uh, they were more accepted there, uh, but but like you know. But now, if a if a guy had an extramarital affair and a child outside of the marriage, that was a scandal. But if if he did not provide for that child, then he faced uh, you know severe social uh, what's the word excommunication. Like like having a have if if you're a man a grown man and you're married and you have a, a child outside the marriage and you don't provide for that child like it's it is a severe and swift uh, social uh, uh, social uh, how would you say exile you know so whereas you know here it, it's similar you know but I, it's uh, but there it's a, that's a huge thing you know that you must provide for your kids at, at, if you are a man so. So again, I, now I don't know. I don't know that that relates to homelessness, uh, but generally speaking, the the financial, I don't know, the financial. How could I say this? The financial flow inside a family was uh, larger. D- does that sound plausible to you? What was the question? <laughs> I'm terrible. Well, I'm, my, I was distracted you, you, by my Twitch. You asked me. I've, I've I was, I was speculating about. Why did we see? Why did I see so few homeless people there, even though their population density was much higher, and there was little to no social safety net? And you know, I, I my my thought is that I think that 
the the families tend to take care of their members better i think was was one cause now another thing could also be that uh the police there won't won't tolerate might might not tolerate vagrancy you know again i don't know you know i but it would not surprise me if chinese police would rough up beggars and tell them to get lost well where would they so, go though like the they have to be somewhere physically i again total total speculation yeah. but you know you know it, it would be something i can i can totally imagine a mayor saying we need these homeless people off the you know off of out of downtown so to speak but again no oh, evidence and that happens in america constantly right they're constantly moving people from uh you know one camp to another they just push them out of the nice neighborhoods because they're an eyesore right which doesn't yeah. solve the homeless problem at all all it does is move it you know i <laughs> a, yeah. a friend of mine is a police officer and he said well you know i'm not i'm not sure how good we are at um at stopping crime but we're really good at displacing crime <laughs> so so you can push the crime around like you can you can push it elsewhere and if you know someone's an eyesore you can move them but but then where do they end up so in, unless in beijing or shanghai there is a skid row but you don't know where it is right and i, I don't know i don't know how that works and my understanding of the the chinese uh situation is that you can't point that out like anything that embarrasses the ccp is blocked and banned and nobody can talk about it right yeah so so i don't i don't know and how would you know right it's a it's a city of however many 200 million <laughs> shanghai the greater shanghai area is what? greater shanghai is well over 20 million 20 million um, yeah. yeah and so Which you is... obviously wouldn't know if there was a, a right like you would have no way of knowing if there's a skid row in shanghai because it's not in your neighborhood, so you don't physically see it. Yeah, so I, yeah, and and in, in I the mean, most extreme cases, you know, in the Uyghurs, that they, they get sent off to re-education camps, and you don't know yeah. about that either because no one's allowed I, I, to I'm talk not, about I'm it. Really, I'm really, I'm really just not sure about that. You yeah, know, I, just, I just don't know. So it's, I it's really just don't. Yeah, know. so it's possible that somehow the Chinese system is better in a way that I don't understand. It's possible that it's way worse in a way that I don't understand. It's possible that just having um, a community, or sorry, having strong family values solves ninety-five percent of the problem because when yeah. when kids have problems, when someone, when an adult has problems, there's enough of a support system in the family structure itself to um, keep them from uh, from from being homeless, from being on the street. Maybe that maybe that's how that yeah. works. I, you know, and and another thing to point that I find also interesting is that, you know, China doesn't really have a, in its current form, doesn't have a strong religious tradition. You know, officially the official religion is atheism. You know, and uh, religious religious groups are viewed very suspiciously by the government, um, and so that that is a it seems to be a situation where that the family ties are strong enough that even without, you know, as you pointed out, the Christian tradition of taking care of, you know, the poor and the, the weak, I guess I would say, or the, the disabled, you know, it, it, it seems to happen there. And, you know, I, it's, part of me also wonders is that, is this just a temporary state of China? Because, you know, I, I, I know personally people who survived, uh, you know, the great, leap forward and who survived 
the Cultural Revolution, and they faced real starvation, not not fake starvation, not like sort of the starvation of how can I say this of uh, things that are labeled starvation but aren't actually starvation uh, at, at a population level, yeah. and and those people that survive that are unbelievably uh, hardy and emotionally tough, and that. that Having survived that in a situation where you know could not work harder to make more money, to a market economy where where that where that sort of those habits meant you know meant great things. I I don't know that that's going to last forever because then uh, let me tell you those those people who are now what I guess in their sixties and above they are hardworking people yeah. and they do not need much comfort. Yeah, and so. I I was trying to remember how this, how, where I heard this, but one thing that I heard about why in America, African Americans are, there's such a wealth disparity racially, when you look at the racial divide and wealth disparity, part of what's happening is that even when you have uh, someone that runs a very successful business or becomes a doctor or something, and so they have a lot of money, what happens is they they're having to provide so much support to ex extended family network that their wealth gets diluted. Whereas I was raised by my parents in a situation where my parents were fine. They didn't need, you know, extra money from me. Like I didn't need to go out and make them money. If I make a billion dollars, my parents still don't need any of that money, right? They wouldn't want a billion dollars. Um, they, they, I, I don't know, maybe I'd give it to them and they'd give it away. Right. But you know, I come. I'm come from a, a a financial situation where everybody is pretty much stable, right? And so, mm -hmm. if I get rich, I get rich, and I pretty much keep it to myself, and that's how I get wealthy. But if I if I came from a situation where, you know, my cousins are all broke, and my siblings are all broke, and three generations of my family are all broke, and nobody owns any land, right? No one has retirement accounts. We're all taken care of you know, three generations in the same home. Um, and I make $10 million. Um, it's pretty easy that that $10 million could go out to dozens of people, you know, in my church congregation and it all dissipates. Right. So I'm helping all those people and that's great, but that's part of the statistical, um, factor is that when you come from a, yeah. when you come from a community, that is lower income and you make a bunch of money as an individual you and you you have you want to and you do and that's a, the right thing to do is to help the whole community right but now your individual success is diluted across you know 100 people whereas yeah. if i went to mit and started a company and made $10 million, I'd have $10 million <laughs> because nobody else yeah. needs my money. Right. <laughs> and like, maybe I, you know, I'd give my brother money if he wanted it or whatever. Cause I wouldn't care. Like I, I don't, I don't want $10 million. I just want to know that I'm, you know, that I can retire someday and have, you know, a, a comfortable, you know, reasonable life where I'm not worried about, I, I want to be able to stop working someday in my old age. Right. And that's sure. all the money I need. I want to go on a scuba trip every once in a while, you know, which is a couple five thousand dollars or whatever. And now, I need to I, buy I'm, a new truck. I'm going to call week. you out here. Yeah, I'm going to call you out here because yeah. I think 
I secretly you would buy a solid gold dirt bike to show <laughs> off to your friend. <laughs> yeah, solid gold dents, dude. If you have twenty four karat gold, you can dent it with your fingernail. Exactly. Not you're so I... rich that you're going to have a solid gold dirt bike, and you don't even care. That's how loaded you are. No, I'm kidding. No, I, I, I agree I, with I've, you. I've I... never, I've never dented gold with my fingernail. For the record, I've just watched videos on YouTube where they show that you can do it. So yeah, yeah, that so, could so that, very well that's, be. Yeah, so that's part yeah. of it. So if you, if you have a society where the communal, uh, or sorry, the family ties are really strong, then if you know, 1% of your cousins really fucks up and gets addicted to heroin or whatever. You've got a hundred people that can pull them out of that problem. Right. As opposed to if you don't have strong family ties and you fuck up and you're on heroin, now you're on skid row. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And there's no social safety net. So I've been saying, Hey, why don't we take some of Jeff Bezos's money just as an example and give that person supportive drug treatment whatever and housing because they're more expensive letting them be unhoused and housing first is probably the way to go like the the solution to the housing problem is to give people houses <laughs> so not fancy well, houses but like tiny I mean, houses like i lived in my rv for uh, what like nine months total i was full-time in my rv i guess and uh you know it's not an extravagant lifestyle but it's nice you know i i, I not as nice as having a house but but you can't leave people on the fucking street in Nebraska when it's fucking 27 degrees below zero wind chill. Yeah, so, <sighs> I mean... It's disappointing. You, you, know, you know more about this, way more about this than I do. Um, but, uh, I mean, what, uh, so what is the situation with uh, homeless shelters in Omaha? So my, my first question, as someone who doesn't know anything about it, would be, are there homeless shelters? And what are the requirements and limitations of those homeless shelters in Omaha? Yeah. So so with the Code for Nebraska project, one of our sub projects was a, a housing effort where what we were doing is we were just um, cataloging all of the different shelters that are available. Right. And the, so this is a whole universe of stuff that I just have, you know, a couple dozen hours of experience in, not like, you know, a lifetime. But there are a bunch of different housing such um facilities they have different requirements for entry you know some of them are focused on battered women for example well you don't put okay. single dudes in a battered battered women's shelter obviously yeah etc yeah you know so so <laughs> um yeah there's there is there exists a whole network of um housing uh situations right and as a data nerd and as someone who spent 10 years in the hospitality industry um, one of my goals. And it's in was... beds, baby. You called it <laughs> <laughs> exactly. See, you know how this works. I'm a fucking database yeah. guy. So what I want to <laughs> see is I want to see the availability of emergency shelter housing and transitional housing in the greater Omaha area. Right. Well, there's a network of nonprofits and um, that are working on mostly on grant money, etc. Um, and there are efforts for things like, um, uh, what do they call this? It's been six months now since I've looked at all this stuff, but there, there's an effort by like the local hospitals in the area because it's, it's very expensive. I'm trying to remember what the name of that is, but here, here's the problem. 
Someone shows up in the ER and they got their head split open. Well, the emergency room in America is going to stabilize your life without mm-hmm. payment, right? Which I think is great. I think, yay, America, you know, go Team USA. You walk into an ER, we will save your life for free, right? Now, if you have insurance, if you have a way to pay for it, if you have insurance, and hopefully you do, please, you know, have insurance. If, but even if you don't, we'll stabilize you. But if you if you don't have any money, right, and you have um, all kinds of drug addiction problems, et cetera, the hospital needs to get you out of that hospital bed once you're stabilized, because you're no longer a critical care situation. You're now a, a housing and drug addiction situation, right? And a hospital is not a transitional living facility for getting people into housing and finding a job and all that stuff. A hospital is, oh, shit, you broke your leg. Oh, shit, you fell out of a helicopter, you know, whatever. And, you know, heart attacks and, you know, it's mostly just clogged arteries. By Statistically, it's old people with old people problems like me. You know, your butt could explode. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> But uh, so I'm trying. I'm still trying to remember the name, and my brain is Swiss cheese, so it won't it won't tell me the name. But there, there's this whole effort underway where they're trying to come up with a five year plan, and blah 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 blah. And so I'm trying to coordinate with the people who are trying to coordinate with all the different organizations, working with all the different shelters and all the different emergency food services. And I get frustrated because one of the organizations whose name is. And whose mission statement is to do exactly what it seems to me would be a helpful start to understand what is the capacity of Omaha's emergency and transitional housing stuff and know on any given Friday night how many beds are available, if any, Mm -hmm. right? And if the answer is zero, okay, well, what was the demand, right? Did you need five more beds and then you could have emergency housed everyone that needed emergency housing? Did you need 50? Did you need 500? I don't know. Who knows, right? And I've, I've been, you know, <laughs> so, I've, <laughs> so I've, I've worked with people who needed housing that night, right? And taken them to some of these facilities who, and I'm, I'm not disparaging these facilities because, you know, God bless them if, I, you know, I'm, that doesn't mean much coming from me, but, you know, thank you. It's amazing the work that you're doing, as far as I can tell, helping people in their most dire situations, right? And I don't do that full time. So anyone who does that full time has, you know, a thousand times higher, um, uh, they're they're on the high road, the ethical high ground over me, right? Like, I'm I'm nothing compared to what they do with their entire, you know, live lives, their career. I just mm-hmm. play around with it on the weekend. Um, but I couldn't get on two different occasions. I couldn't get emergency housing for people that were in bad shape, right? Well, one thing that happens sometimes is they end up back in the emergency room. Because at least it's warm, right? Right. And right. oops, I, I, you know, I can't breathe. I'm back in the emergency room, mm-hmm. and that costs the hospitals a lot of money because you're not actually in respiratory distress. You're in housing distress, and you're in food distress, and you're in mm-hmm. mental health distress. You're suicidal. You're whatever. You know, all this shit is going on, and it's a fucking mess. But the 
trauma room in a hospital, apparently, as a society we've chosen, is, is not the place that we're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out at a bunch of different private institutions, some of which are religiously affiliated and some of them aren't. And they, I don't know where they get all their money. Anyway, it's a whole network of, of entities, and it's mm-hmm. a mess. And I'm a database guy. And I'm like, why isn't there just a website that shows that there's 27 beds available at the, you know, the blah, blah, blah center on South Q Street? Why, why can't you see that? Like, if it's mm-hmm. a problem of technology, I'll fix the technology for you for free, right? Mm-hmm. Let's get these things talking to each other so as a region we can see what is our demand. Because if we have a big, uh, you know, like seasonal uh, demand pool in, you know, hospitality parlance, I guess, <laughs> you know, I'm pulling this yeah. out of my hospitality <laughs> experience. I'm like, look, yeah. there's a seasonality curve here where people are fine hanging out down by the river in the summer because it's nice out. And then when it's 27 below, people die. Uh, we need more housing apparently in the winter months when there's a cold snap or something like, like how can you not know if, if you're, if you're a government employee whose job it is to be the, the Omaha, like there's a thing called the Omaha housing authority, right? Okay. So I would think that a thing called the Omaha housing authority, that part of their thing would be understanding emergency housing situation. What is the inventory in our city? What facilities are there? How much are they getting supported? How much support do they need? Do they have enough? Do we need more? Do we need, you know, property taxes to support these things? Uh, And I, I was, you know, 30 hours into this, I was really frustrated with how much, um, just kind of networking ambiguity it was and how much it's apparently showing up in a tons of meetings trying to figure out, you know, all of these different institutions and what their priorities are. And I'm not faulting them. Like, they're running a fucking emergency sure. shelter. They have better things to do than to talk to some jackass who thinks he has a fancy spreadsheet somewhere on the Internet. Like, who gives a shit? I have problems right now where the guy just knocked over the receptionist table. <laughs> you know? so, in, so I'm curious, in that, if you could comment, in that specific instance, what were the reasons that you couldn't find, that he couldn't be admitted? Was there just no availability of a bed? Or did this person not meet certain requirements? Well, so one of the facilities doesn't turn anyone away ever, right? Okay. And unfortunately, they have so much bedding, and then they have a common area where people end up sleeping in like an overflow situation. But this individual was aware of that facility, had been there, felt like he had been robbed at that facility, so I obviously I wasn't there. I have no oh. idea what actually happened that night. He didn't oh, feel safe like, going there. Oh, huh? like actually robbed, not metaphorically robbed? Yes. Like Okay. Like he, he felt like he was in danger. That was a dangerous, bad place. He can't go there. Right? Okay. Okay. So we went to another place and that other place was full. And how you know that place is full is you go there and you say, Hey, uh, here's the situation. Can you help? And they tell you you're full. They, they tell you that they have no beds, right? So, okay, as a data guy, I'm like, all right, well, how often are you full? Because if you're full 100% of the time, you probably need $10 million to build another wing of this facility because apparently we need more beds, right? And you need more staffing and you need more cooks and you need more money for food and you need more money for shelter and, you know, whatever. I, I don't I don't know what your budget you – know, uh, so – 
And it's just so huge and ambiguous, and it's this huge hydra of of organizations that are presumably all trying to do really good work. But I got so frustrated with one organization where I could not get the f- – uh, this is making me mad. The sole purpose of this organization is to do things like we were trying to do, and I couldn't get the guy who runs that organization – to return a phone call, to return an email. I had to publicly call him out, trying to get him to talk to me, and then he ghosted me again. And if you can't get the people whose job it is is to do this kind of thing, to spend five minutes with someone like me on behalf of an organization with multiple volunteers, it's not just, hey, I'm, uh, I, I know code and I can do stuff. No, it's that we you know, are an organization trying to help um, all, all Nebraskans with data uh, visibility problems and data integration problems and problems like this, right? Like, isn't this a problem that we don't know? <sighs> Is it, this particular – so, yeah, man, that sucks. Uh, did did – is this particular group a private charity or a, a government organization? Well, yeah. So then I'd have to chase down exactly why it is that people were deferring to this organization and they weren't doing what I thought was their whole purpose in existing, right? So then I'd have to go to war with, well, well, where do you get your money? Like who gives you the oh. money that you get, right? Sure. And I'm going to have to start calling them out on this crap, you know, and I'm just like, look, I've got a full time job. You know, I, I have a full time job that I'm already trying to do. So and I I just got very frustrated with it. So the answer is that, yes, there's a bunch of shit in Omaha that does this kind of stuff. Okay. And and I feel very grateful for the people that are doing the work. Right. I'm not trying to bash on anyone who's working hard doing this stuff to help people. That's great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're a way better person than I am. But systemically it looks like it's a full-time job just to try to stir the politics of the system uh, in order to try to make uh, improvements, which I'm not willing to do, right? But if well, you're getting I mean, it's, paid it's, full-time, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, if, you're getting paid, if, you're, if your whole job is to do that thing, why do you suck at it? Right. And maybe it's just that I rubbed in the wrong way or something or whatever. I don't know. But I I was trying to be like super, super duper nice about it. Right. Like I'm I'm being way more aggressive about it right now than I ever was in public with him or with him. I was super kids gloves, soft, nice, nice, nice about it. And and it didn't go anywhere. And that's just that. uh, So, yeah, that would be a full time. Like if I got I don't know, it would be a full time job to try to figure out how to help, which is. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in one of the questions that. Uh... Oh, I lost you. I think you're. <laughs> I think the internet just went out in Austin, Texas. <laughs> oh God. Well, dear listener, that was the end of that. Uh, Justin's internet failed, <laughs> so he called me on my cell phone uh, moments later and explained that the power went out in, at his uh, at his house. So we lost that internet connection. So anyway, uh, join us again next time where maybe we'll pick up <laughs> on that thread or other threads. But hopefully you've enjoyed this episode, episode 33. 
and all of the great information Justin had to share about uh, living in China. Uh, I will catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.